Shamai, you may have seen on the social media that uh, uh, H plus 51, so HR podcast number 51, uh, Chris Shirley, ex-bootneck officer, ex-RMP, and the founder of the Hiatus Foundation and the Tales of Adventure uh, speaker series. He has had a nasty mountaineering accident in uh, in Italy. He's not well at all. So um, his family and friends, and I am asking uh, if you can... Uh, to show your support for him when he comes around. He's, he's, he's unfortunately in an, in an induced coma at the minute to try and get over a fever that's affecting him. Um, so his family and friends and I are asking that when he comes around, he's got a bunch of videos and messages from people online who have heard about his uh, his mishap uh, that he can look at and, uh, and give him a bit of encouragement in his recovery. He loves a shaka. You know, the surf's up dude signing the shaka. He... Uh, he loves a good Shaka, so they put a hashtag together, Shaka for Chris, Shaka number four Chris. So uh, either do a picture, do a video, get well soon Chris, and hashtag it Shaka for Chris. And then when he comes around, they're going to search up that hashtag and you look at them all and, and, and get a, a nice warm fuzzy feeling because people love him. I love him. Everybody loves him. He's, a, he's an amazing dude. He's got an event going on this Wednesday that he organised that he now can't host, obviously, because he's, uh, he's, not, he's not well. Um, but he... He orchestrated flying a couple of Afghan female mountaineers over to speak at this event, um, which is truly amazing. The event is still going ahead. His family and friends have uh, rallied around and getting on top of it and still unable to go ahead because Chris would be gutted if it didn't go ahead. Um, and BBC defence correspondent Jonathan Beale has very kindly agreed to step in at the last minute and host the event, uh, which is uh, which is exactly what he's doing. So... Um, if you listen to this before Wednesday, the second of October, try and get to the event on when on Wednesday. If you're not if you listen to it after Wednesday, second of October, the event is gone. It's obviously been a success, but still, please do the shack of a Chris message. Sweet, get well soon, Chris. We love you, buddy. Enabling this podcast today, supporting this podcast today, rugby for heroes, rugby for heroes who have just had their inaugural. Supper Club event, which was fundraising for the charitable organisation, the 353 Trust, set up by Tony Lewis and his wife Sandy, in memory of the 353rd British forces person to be killed in Afghanistan. Rugby for Heroes raised, it was over £4,000 that, that night, uh, just last week. £4,000. They were, they, were, they were auctioning off Six Nations tickets and all sorts of stuff. Seeing it as Gail Kit, it was pretty. It was a pretty early night with awesome people there. I really enjoyed it. The next Rugby for Heroes event is a Rugby for Heroes invitational rugby match between the Old Lemontonians RFC veterans versus the Rugby for Heroes invitational military veterans 15, which I fully intend to play at this time. I couldn't do the last time because I was injured. Uh, I've got to get a checkup and I should be good to go for this one and then probably get injured in the match anyway, which is uh, which is not great. Yeah, I've got another supper club coming up, and that's going to be the 27th of March next year. Get it in your diary now. I know some of the guest speakers are going to speak there, and uh, and you will be extremely impressed. That one is going to be in aid of Team Rubicon UK. So stick it in your diary, 27th of March, 2020, Rugby for Heroes Supper Club. It will once again be at the Tame Hair in Leamington. This restaurant is the Shiznet. I ate there at the Rugby Heroes event last week, and I'm telling you now, they stuffed an onion. They stuffed an onion with oxtail. An onion with oxtail. I don't know how they did it. It was like black magic because the onion wasn't cut open. 
It's like they grew the onion with oxtail in it. It was it was voodoo. It did not taste like voodoo. It tasted like just deliciousness in an onion. Uh, so thank you to Johnny of the team here. Doing a fantastic job. And uh, he was an amazing host for the Rugby Heroes event. As was Mike, who was the actual host <laughs> of the Rugby Heroes event. Johnny runs the team here. I'm waffling shit. Got a, uh, real shit, I'm just waffling. Uh, follow Rugby for Heroes at Rugby Number four heroes on social media or rugbyforheroes.org, rugbyforheroes.org. Also sponsoring the podcast today are Westway Nissan, the UK's largest Nissan dealership. They are mahoosive, but that does not mean their prices are also mahoosive. Their prices are very, very modest indeed. And it is... Not, not a day goes by when they haven't got an offer on. I swear down. I swear down. Not a day goes by when an offer isn't on. At all. You can get, at the minute, I think they do this all the time actually. They do like a price match guarantee on tyres. So you can go and get a service in there. You can get a free health check for your car. Take your car in. They'll take a look and go, mm, this needs doing. Or that doesn't need doing. You're all good, Mrs. Smith. You're all good, Mr. Goujon. No one has a surname Goujon. I thought that off the top of my head. You get the picture. You can get a Nissan Leaf test drive. You can book it. 100% electric Nissan Leaf. They've got offers on the Nissan Micro at the minute. They've got offers on the Nissan Duke. They get makes and models of Nissan that you can't get in any other dealership. Because Westway have exclusive deals with Nissan, whereby they get shit. The other dealerships don't get such is a high regard that Nissan hold Westway Nissan in. Yes. In addition to that, they also do up to a 20% discount for serving personnel and veterans. They do new and used vehicles. They do private and commercial models. So, I shouldn't have to say it. I'm going to say it. Go to Westway Nissan, get yourself a vehicle if you want one. I drive a Westway Nissan vehicle. It is fucking awesome. I've never had a drama with it. I had a drama with a missus car the other day when I put diesel in it. No, I put petrol in it. It was a diesel. I didn't put a little bit in either. I had 20 litres of petrol in my missus's diesel car. She was not impressed. I didn't know what was wrong. I didn't know what I'd done wrong. I even called the fucking AA. Nightmare. What an idiot. What an idiot. I had a little chuckle, mind. I did have a little chuckle at myself. She did not chuckle. Neither did the AA guy. However, we're talking about Westway now and not me being a moron. Go to westwaynissan.co.uk or follow on social media. Westway Nissan. If you get a diesel car from them, put diesel in it. If you get a petrol car, put petrol in it. If you get an electric car, put electricity in it. Really simple. I struggle with it, but you guys should be all right, especially if you get up to a 20% discount off. Who cares? If you do put the wrong fuel in it, you'll save 20%, which you can put towards fixing the vehicle. Westwaynissan.co.uk. Thank you to you guys. Don't forget, go to charliecharlie1.com forward slash Nico. That's N-I-C-O. Like Nico Rosberg, the racing driver. Or Nico Hulkenberg, the racing driver. My good friend, Nico Viljoin in South Africa, uh, who's got a, you've heard me say it before, he's got a rare form of skin cancer, recently contracted it. It is hideous. Uh, the best chance of his survival is uh, by getting treatment in a in Sheba Medical Center in Israel, which is what he started doing. It costs a bomb, though. He needs to raise, him and his family and his fiance and his kids, they're trying to raise around about a million rand, 
which is not an insignificant sum of money. They're well on the way there. They still need help with it, okay? They've got a fundraising campaign uh, at a, on, a, on a South African-based fundraising site, which has got an epically long uh, URL, epically long website name. So if you do charliecharlie1.com forward slash Nico, it'll, it'll redirect you automatically to the fundraising site. So please go there and donate if you can, if you've not already. For those people that have donated already, there would be loads of you. I really appreciate it. Nico really appreciate it, appreciates it, and so does Tracy and his children. So thank you. If you have already donated, please go back to the site anyway and give it a share and encourage other people to do the same. That is it. On to my guest today, Steve McCulley, ex-bootneck officer, served uh, served in, in a plethora of different operational theatres when he was in, got injured in Afghanistan, got a bad injury and since got out and now he's... He's a successful entrepreneur, designed like super lightweight folding bike. I think it's the lightest folding bike that has been designed, put that into production, Leos Bikes. He's an absolute petrol head. He's an absolute petrol head with something like 25 podiums under his belt. He's a dude. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. I like my, uh, I like my petrol too. Uh, I like, obviously I like my petrol and my petrol cars. I don't like, uh, my missus likes petrol in her petrol car, not diesel. I like, uh, oh no, it's shit, she got a diesel, isn't she? Man, it's an easy mistake to make. Anyway, onto the, po- onto, onto the podcast. H-Hour with Steve McCulley. So I have, I have a disproportionate amount of bootnecks on this. I, I know I've heard. Oh my God. I've had a bit of a drought recently, though. Anyway, Steve McCulley, absolute uh, absolute pleasure to have you on, bloody. Thanks absolute for having pleasure me. Pleasure to have you on. Uh, so uh, we, we could ice break, since you're a petrol head, yep. as you mentioned off air. F1, Russia on the weekend. Mm-hmm. In fact, I said to the missus, I'm going to ask her about Vettel. She said, no, don't. I'm going to talk for 90 minutes about Vettel. She said, don't, don't, don't do that. <laughs> I don't think I'll be able to talk that long about Mate, him. Mate, I know. I wouldn't want to talk that long about him. But uh, what did you take of Vettel's... Did he throw his teddies at the pram? Or well, not? I, well, I'm not dis- sure. Disobey orders? Is that what you mean? Well, like Pulling so over when he shouldn't have? Or so, let's, so let's set the scene for people who, uh, yeah. who may be interested in motorsport. In fact, it's certainly seen anyway, whether you fucking like it or not. We won't talk much about this, but so Ferrari one two, Leclerc on, no Leclerc on pole, Vettel in number two, Mercedes at number three and four. So the plan was launch off the start. Vettel takes the slipstream of Leclerc, overtakes Leclerc to go into first place to deny the Mercedes getting between them. Yeah. I didn't understand that bit. Can you it, explain yeah, that? Because it's me? such a long straight. The toe was quite a big thing there, and they knew that actually anybody behind Leclerc in pole was probably going to jump him. So I'm, I'm guessing, reading between the lines, Ferrari decided, well, it's best that we get uh, Vettel to slipstream Leclerc, get past, and then swap them back because Leclerc was the faster driver, got pole position instead of a Merc, instead of a Mercedes slipstreaming getting past. Exactly. Are, they, are the Mercedes quicker off the mark? I mean, it just no. It just depends on the driver, really. Okay. But um, it was all about the the toe on that specific uh, start line, and I think they probably didn't anticipate that Vettel then kind of actually got a bit of a gap on Leclerc. Yeah. So uh, they probably anticipated Leclerc to be right behind him, but he had a kind of a second and a half gap, 
and um yeah then Vettel kind of I guess disobeyed orders from what it sounded like obviously yeah, we don't know I, they asked him twice didn't they and yeah. the, the first time he, he, they said let others have ones alright is it coming through one year sometimes that's fine that's, yeah, fine. that's fine um they said they said to him right let him pass in the next lap or let him you're gonna let him pass the next lap whatever and Vettel said no he's he's too far away yeah he said close the gap then I'll let him pass and then uh, yeah and then the next time no the first time sorry he said well no I would have beat him I would have got in front of him anyway yeah and then the second time he asked him he said uh, no he's catch me up and then they did the pit stop and Leclerc came out in front yeah after some yeah after some like interesting radio chatter and then Vettel broke down anyway. Yeah, which not his fault, you know, no. at the end of the day. Engine no. went. No, but then they told him to pull over, which meant the safety car came out. Yeah. Hamilton pitted. And then Hamilton ends up in front and wins the race. Yes. Leclerc was third? Uh, yeah. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he was third behind Bottas. Yeah. yeah. And then there was questions around why didn't Ferrari say, get yourself all the way back, crawl back into the pit lane to prevent the safety car coming out. Yeah, but they they didn't. They told him it was, well, yeah, there was an engine issue where you have to stop now or else it's going to blow type yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, ah. yeah. What do you think about Vettel? I don't know. I, In yeah, general? I think he's, he's had his time, mm. basically. And, you know, there'd be a lot, of, he'd be under a lot of pressure. Clearly, <laughs> new kid in Leclerc in the team. He's clearly quicker, um, probably hungrier because he's young. And yeah, it'd be difficult for Vettel, but I, I, yeah, I think he's in a team that probably in- implements some of the highest pressure you can of any of those teams. Yeah. Ferrari, man, yeah, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean. <laughs> so yeah, I think he's he's probably uh, yeah. Who knows what whether he'll be pushed or whether he'll jump, but um, yeah, I think his his time is up. Whereas Hamilton, who started in the same era as Vettel, he's you know he's still on top of his game. Yeah, sixth world championship coming up. Hopefully, yeah, hopefully. Um, were you a petrolhead before the bootnecks? Um, typical bloke, always been interested in cars, uh, but never, you know, never thought I'd get into racing or motorsport. Um, I guess a bit of a pipe dream, you know, it's a lot, lot of money. And so, so no, I guess it, it wasn't on my radar. It was, um, it was just, you know, something I followed, but you know, I'd never been to a, a Grand Prix or anything like that. I still haven't actually been to a Grand Prix race. Oh, really? No. <laughs> um, um, and so no, it, it was literally when I got injured, that's how I got into motorsport whilst I was in rehabilitation so it's it's pretty fairly recent injured in Afghan yeah he did Ireland Kosovo Sierra Leone Iraq Afghan yeah kind of yeah, I joined yeah, well, I was commissioned was it 97 so yeah Tony Blair just taken over and then you know Labour government sent us everywhere for about yeah well my, I nearly did 18 years in the end yeah mm. it was a busy busy period mm-hmm. yeah it was a proper busy period I do, I, when I talk about it in the past I said like you know that it is the sweet spot yeah. of operations for the British forces. Yeah. You know, just did people had a, a chance at everything. I joined in two thousand, so I got a couple of got a couple of short Northern Ireland tours in. Yeah, and then again everything everything on from there. It was um, lucky if you look at it that way. Um, no, totally. I think a lot of guys looked at it as being lucky serving during that period. But then all, at the same time, there was a lot that had um, you know operational fatigue, back to back tours, and. Certainly, you know, when it came down to you know, power reg, marines, teeth arms, it would be the same guys going back out and doing the combat stuff. And yes, you know, we can spout off about how many tens of thousands of British military served in Afghanistan. But, you know, the, the guys, you know, I'm not taking anything away from all, all those people, but the guys that are actually, you know, on the ground walking out of checkpoints each, each day, 
it'd be interesting to know what the figures were but i, I could yeah it'd be less than a thousand definitely less than a thousand you know that have probably actually been in kind of day-to-day firefights or ied situations or whatever over what, what less than a thousand and what over the whole campaign yeah if you, well, if you add, added up because you've got a, a lot of these people they've they've kind of gone back and back and back again and yeah. it's the same ones oh, that I are see. getting caught I up see. in firefights and so on i don't know i i remember i remember when i remember when i was leaving um there was so i served three power i remember when i was leaving at some point i can't remember who said it to me and they were saying that so i, I ended up doing three afghan tours and they were saying that so the first one was 06, the second was 08, and then the third one was 2010, 2011, was a winter tour. And there was someone saying that of <coughs> within three power, there's only, sounds weird this, within three power, there's only 14 people who did all three tours on the front line. Is, okay. When I say on the front line, I mean exactly what you say, going, yeah, out, yeah. going out and checkpoints. Where, whereas, oh, uh, was quite a check- yeah, okay. But I don't know where that figure came from. Yeah. It could be dog shit. But at the same time, we are, did have a high turnover rate. Like after the 06 tour, that first one, man, lost so much time. Like so much, because people, were, the full screw sergeants, secret message sergeant, we just done it. And a lot of them went, yeah, fuck this, and, and left, you know, because uh, they, they sort of, they got what they wanted. At that point, they, they were at that point in their career was, where is decision point, with, whatever you're doing, am I going to stay in? You're like 12 year point, am I going to stay in for longer? Am I going to get out? And, and then Afghan happened, and I was like, oh, well, I've done that now. Let's go, what, how can it possibly get better? What can I possibly achieve? more than that let's, let's suck it yeah I'm trying to think if we had a similar thing I, I, only around the maritime security kind of area where there is a, a few years where a lot of guys were like oh actually I can go and earn however many hundred pound a day doing maritime security but that bubble burst yeah um, it was a pretty short bubble with maritime yeah, it, was, right? yeah. it was a longer bubble with CP yeah it, it, well yeah a, a longer bubble with CP and well CP's still going now and, and sort of the manpower is still about the same but the money's just dog shit whereas with maritime the money plummeted, but also the amount yeah. of expats on the team plummeted, actually. Well, exactly. I think initially, you know, it started off, it was, you know, XSFX, you know, Marines, Power Edge, and so on. And then they opened it up and up and up and up and up until eventually. And so, as you say, so the, the wages would, would go down and <clears throat> therefore the guys would be like, well, actually, this is not for me. The problem is, you know, they, they, at the end of the day, you're kind of, I suppose if, once you had done a Iraq and Afghan tour, then it, it did come down to guys wanting to earn more money. Yeah. Yeah, rather than looking for action it was just a case of well actually i can go and put my life in a little bit of danger and be paid a lot more money so yeah. i'll go and do that yeah 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 and then uh the problem with that is that the problem with that is is that people went out and did that and then never never considered what they're gonna do when they get back yeah exactly when, as in when they come back to the uk I, I know, you know as well people who are in the circuit now like or doing my own security and they have done nothing else since they left and, they, and and that's all they were I know I was on a contract in Iraq and it was a 67 year old a 67 year old bloke working in Iraq on an 8 and 4 rotation 8 weeks in Iraq 4 weeks well 3 and a half weeks at home when you take the travel in 67 yeah. mental I suppose some guys you get maybe I don't know you, you, know, you get a big mortgage or whatever you know you kind of start living a lifestyle that requires you to earn that kind of money yeah. And, you, you know, you wouldn't be able to get that in a kind of a, what we call a normal job back in the UK. So you, I guess you're a bit tied in. Mm. I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't. Yeah. Different these days. You can get more earning back in the UK than flipping construction work. Yeah. Than, than, the, than the, the wages you get in the rack in a minute. Depending on the contract you're on, it's absolutely rubbish. They don't, I mean, I've heard 100, $120 a day. Really? Yeah. I mean, I'm out of, t- I wouldn't know. Mental. Yeah. Crazy. Uh, yeah. Crazy. But again, when you've got nothing else to come back to, you've got no other, you've got no other experience under your belt. You can't see any other option but stay out and do it. 
And you're stuck in it then. Especially if you haven't got any savings to come back and give yourself a few months, even just a few months um, breathing space to try and get a job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel for those guys, you know, I feel for those guys. No, that does sound like a shit situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, what injury did you get? Um, so, luckily I've still got all my limbs, faculties, so I'm lucky in that sense. Um, so mine were mainly internal injuries. It was a dire- directional fragmentation charge. Okay. Um, the the Taliban, they, they knew I was the commander, so I was specifically targeted. We, we we kind of know that because later that day, electronic warfare specialists, yeah, they picked up the Taliban communications and they, you know, they were praising Allah and they, they were telling the, the Taliban commanders that they'd killed the local ISAF commander. So we, we know I was specifically targeted and actually on that specific patrol, like, I know which, which guys triggered it because we were, we were, you know, watching them whilst we were patrolling. I had them in my sights and I was like, yeah, those guys are up to no good. We know they're, you know, they're kind of following us, they're reporting back. But obviously because you can't, you can't, exactly, you can't do anything until they pose a, an imminent threat to someone. That's um, interesting. I've had some interesting conversations with some people about dickers and whether you should or shouldn't be able to shoot I think them. it depends what time you were in Afghanistan. At this time, it was definitely, it, it wasn't a situation where you, you could do it. Ah, well, yeah, and I, it was... Yeah, all depending on the situation. I mean, I never knew of a time when it was always all right to shoot a dicker. It was, no. It's all in context yes. and all that. And uh, um, and the discussion I had with a guy called Ben Griffin, who was an ex-Hereford guy. And he, he didn't serve in Afghanistan, he served in Iraq. He was ex-Tubar, ex-Hereford. And now he's he's a member of an organization called Veterans for Peace. And we had a discussion. And he was, in his head, He according to him, if if you shot a dicker in Afghanistan, you would, in his words, get away with it every time. Whereas if you did that in Northern Ireland, you would never do that. Well, two the two different the two different scenarios, and uh, number one, the two different scenarios, and number two, that isn't the case. Yeah, that isn't the case. No. I know ninety nine point nine percent of times, if I decided to shoot a dicker, I'd be in jail now. Yeah, well, exactly. You know, I'd be in jail now. But um, it's just interesting to say that. Are you happy to talk through the? Are you happy to talk through the patrol? Yeah, yeah, no, very happy. Yeah, I'm, I'm one of the fortunate people that. Although I got blown up and put in a coma for three weeks, I, I can I can still remember everything vividly right up until being carried onto the helicopter and being put asleep. So it was Whereas, it daytime around? Yeah, it was probably uh, mid, midday-ish. Do you want to go through it from the morning? Yeah, well, yeah. I suppose, really, I should probably go from the day before. Go from where you want to go, mate. Because it just adds a bit more context. In fact, okay, in which case, I'm going to wind back six days. Listen, we've got an hour and a half, but <laughs> okay. you, you crack on. Um, all right, so serious context. Uh, we were... Juliet Company, 4-2 Commando. We were a ground-holding company. Um, so our primary role, role was, uh, you know, we had six checkpoints. It was to provide security and assistance to the local population. A uh, bit of mentoring with the Afghan National Police and Army. Although we only had, I had three police checkpoints in my AO. Um, with about 20, 25 Afghan police. But they actually came under the command of um, police further south in a different AO to us so that was always that was quite tricky and we had I had a eight-man Afghan army section attached to the company and that would rotate every six weeks and so you you basically get them in train them they get you know get to about week six seven and they would start being was it normal at task then? no 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 we were a ground holding company but right, they, right, right. I'm just I suppose I'm just trying to you know, give a bit of um background to where we were we, we were working in Nadi Ali North but whereabouts I said that, yeah. Whereabouts? So Sh- Shazad was 
uh, PVHQ. Yeah, yeah, same for us when we were there. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, when were you there? Were you three power? East? Yeah. Oh, we took over from you. Oh, did you? Yeah, so I was over at Kamar and all. Uh, PB Kamar. And, um, so what, what tour was that? You? Uh, that winter tour, 2010, 2011. All oh, right, yeah, yeah. So I, yeah, we t- I had to go from B Company. Yeah, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. All oh, right, well, so you know. Gaznialli and all the rest of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so. you know the area very well then. I don't need to. That, well, Shazad, Gaznialli, I don't know that well. I, yeah, I, so I know right. it from, I'm a map recce, but I never I never went to those areas. So it was Quadrat, Kamar. Okay. All them. Um, what the fuck are What else was it? Folad. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Bad. Yep. So we, I think we were, I think we were west. Of west. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, northwest. Okay. Small world. Yeah, no, the ne- and the names are coming <laughs> back to me now as well. Yeah. Um, it is because I remember chatting over because actually, I'm, I'm now not, you've asked me a question of how do I get injured, and I'm now talking different. But during my company command handover, um, I actually got we actually got blown up in a mastiff going parallel to Gasney Street. We're going to look at uh, checkpoint Kamiabi. And it was on a one of the, the tracks where, you know, unfortunately your guys had taken quite a few hits. And literally, so I, I'd gone out, we were in Bastion, all my commanders had flown out to Bastion. And we were the first company from 4-2 to fly out. And I'd gone gone forward to do my company commander's recce early. And uh, we were, yeah, in a Mastiff going, going forward to kind of look at Checkpoint Kamiabi. And... Classic, you know, you come across some ground, you know, stones on the road. It kind of looks like, you know, a definite marker for the locals. So the the guys, you know, in the master, they stop, stop the wagon. And there's only myself and the other company commander in the back, plus, you know, the Mastiff driver, commander, gunner, and that was it. And then you had another another Mastiff behind us for its, you know, kind of pairing. And in the back there, you had a, fast, a Ford Air Controller, stripey from 29 commander who was going in to replace to be ready for when my marines came out and, and that was kind of it and um anyway the so the the vehicle commander's like oh, right sirs uh, you, you're gonna need to go out and you know clear the area i was i looked around thinking where's the where's the where's the kind of search guy you know where's the search team to do this <laughs> and so me and the other company commander and a couple of you know and this uh, fac from the other wagon did kind of and i was like Blimey, this is a gonna a pretty uh, kind of a sharp introduction to uh, to doing it. So we did, you know, obviously we've been training. We we kind of did all the procedures and we went out into the field and along to check for wires for command wires first and so on. And as we were going through the field, clearing up, you know, clearing our route as we went, a farmer comes over. We got an interpreter and the farmer's, you know, well, you're ruining my crops going through my field. And we said, well, you know, we think there's something on the on the track. There's a uh, stones over there indicating an IED. So we're gonna we're gonna do our we're gonna clear clear a route. And the farm, no IEDs, no IEDs. You know, this is through the interpreter. And so I said to the interpreter, okay, tell him to walk in front of the Mastiff. And then, and so he said it. And the farm was like, no. We're like, okay, so we're going to continue doing that drill. <laughs> so that, that kind of emphasized, we thought, oh, okay, maybe there's something. And, the, you know, obviously d- during your tour, B Company's tour, they, they'd had, I think guys, I can't remember if guys had been actually killed on it. So it was, it was a known, it was a known route. Certainly. Yeah, injured. they had, but I don't think there were three para. So there's a guy I had on the podcast before. Uh, he's a good friend of mine now called Bags. He, he was a tanky commander and he was at Shazad with, with three para. Right. I think in that tour before and I know they got fucking whacked. Yeah. Yeah. And, fucking and so the guys were obviously pretty tetchy about the whole thing. And that route hadn't been used for ages because of it. Well, Gasney was cowboy town. Yeah, man. yeah. It was like fucking Star Wars bars everywhere. It's crazy, isn't it? And um, 
so anyway, so we start we doing and we we cleared about hundred meters down past where the initial you know the sign was, and so we thought, okay, it's just kids like you know how they they pile up stones or do something you know put stones across the track because they know it slows or even the Taliban do it they it slows you down they watch see what your procedures are going to go and be suss you out so we thought okay it's you know it's not it's not anything and we jump back in the wagon driving along suddenly a massive explosion dust cloud you know fortunately properly strapped in all the gear on and everyone's all right there's a big old blast uh, you know, kind of shaking everyone up, and I kind of I remember looking at the, the company commander I'm taking over for. I can't remember his name, and um, you know, I could see in his eyes, and he looked at me, and we both kind of was like, "Shit, did we just miss that? Have we just walked straight over that?" Because obviously we're clearing out along in the, in the field, then coming back down the track. You know, kind of the 360 jewels you do. And we kind of looked out the back window in the tiny window in the hatch of the mastiff, and we looked out, and we, because I remember it was a market yeah, where we knew we'd cleared up to, and we'd literally we'd driven about three meters past where we'd cleared, and that's when it had gone off. And I wrote off the map. Yeah, three mastiff was out for three months. The one you were in. Yeah, yeah, and so yeah, that was kind of my introduction. So even before my guys had got out, they'd been blown. Yeah, so I ended up, actually I was blown up three times. The third time put me in hospital. <laughs> so I'm either unlucky or lucky. I don't know so that, which way you look so at it. That was six days before. That, that no no sorry that was right that was the right at the beginning right. of the tour uh, like i say my lads it was during the company commander handover mm. um wine forward so yeah so we, we primary role ground holding um security and assistance to the local population a bit of afghan mentoring for the police and army um and so you know you kind of as you know you go about doing your, your daily patrols and so on from from the seven checkpoints but i also i had about 175 guys um had the mastiff group you know and I, our AO was area of operations was about 60 square K, which is about the size of Reading. So, you know, fairly chunky space to look after, 27 checkpoints. And, but I had the ability to release up to 100 blokes at a time to conduct discrete operations, heli-borne, vehicle-borne, football-borne, whatever. And um, it was actually during one of those operations. So early on in the tour, we were actually used by CO3 power. So before my CO had even got out, uh, B Company had a, an op lined, a heliborn op lined up, and it was just as we were about to do the command change. And CO3 power actually said to me, he said, oh, have you done any heliborn ops? And I was like, well, I've been in the Marines 13, 14 years, done a lot of aviation stuff, did the all right. You know, I wasn't bullshit, but I'd said, you know, I've kind of done a lot of stuff because, you know, on and off of ships and land, all that kind of stuff. So he said, all right, do you want to do it? I said, yeah, yeah, we'll crack it. And it went really well, which was good for me because when my CO then came in, I think CO3 power had said, well, yeah, McCulley's done a good job on that op. And my CO actually had an ops company. And so, but when, so when the first op came up, it was actually J Company that did it rather than the ops company. Which is your company. My company, yeah. yeah okay, okay. And so we then kind of shared the kind of, um, or whatever you want to call it, kind of discrete neutralization ops or clearance ops or whatever, search and destroy. Yeah. All that. I bet they hated you, didn't they? Yeah. It was, good, company, it was good. Yeah. <laughs> Initially. But he's really good. He's one of my best mates. Um, and, but that was what it, what it meant was the, the CO had, you know, the ability to launch two maneuver units. Um, but I, I could, whereas the ops company could do that for an indefinite period, I could only do it for, you know, I'd said to him, I could, you know, I could go up to seven days with a hundred guys and then, you know, I could go longer but less guys, obviously, because we've still got to man the checkpoints and do the patrols. Do you want to explain for, pe- for the benefit of civvies listening what an ops company is? So I, I guess it depends on your area of operation. So c- commander unit, you know, we were kind of, for this talk, with th- three companies um, and... Uh, two of us so we're a four company commander unit but one of our companies was attached 
to uh, the which right? It was one rifles. Who took it? Devon and Dorsets? Did they become one rifles? I should know. No, they're four rifles. I should know this. It's a long time ago. Anyway, we we had a company detached to them. So then we within our commando unit we had two ground holding companies. So the job my company's doing, another company had that job, which is where you you well they took over from you, or M company came in, I mm-hmm. guess, to take over from you. And then um, L Company, Lima Company, they were the ops company. And so that basically means the CO's got a manoeuvre element to deploy wherever he feels fit, dependent on the situation, dependent on what's going on. Um, it might, you know, brigade may even, so that, you know, my CO's boss might even say, well, actually, we want your ops company to go and do a specific job. But it, it just gives him the flexibility to shift manpower around his battle space, basically. Mm-hmm. have effect where he wants to otherwise we're all just stuck doing kind of what we call ground holding providing yeah. security and not actually being able to progress so we, we were in a 4-2 commando was in a in an area where we were still in the clear and hold phase so counterinsurgency you got the you know, phases of operation clear hold build and then transfer and uh, 4-2 commando's area of operations was firmly still in the clear and hold stage uh, M company were in a bit of the build not ready to transfer over yet, but certainly J Company, we were clear and hold still. And then Lima Company was used again to do that clear and hold task within the kind of counterinsurgency um, sphere of operations. Mm-hmm. So back to... So yeah, I've, got, I've gone off the track again. Sorry, so sorry. back to... So yeah, wind forward um, eight, eight, ten weeks. And, you know, so far, tour's going very well, but it, it was... You know, there's there's very definite pop, poppy harvest periods, and we were into the period where, uh, you know, where the, the Taliban, the bad guys, whoever, um, you know, the, the 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 poppy farming was complete, and then they would kind of go back to their role of um, being Taliban. And you know, we know there were there were clear kind of phases throughout the year where there would be um, more operational and less operational. Up to contemporary, yeah, exactly, yeah, and it was. Uh, so, so that was kind of building up and the the brigade commander or task force task force helm commander he wanted to clear a large area above uh, to the north of what's called the Nari Bugra Canal and he wanted to uh, basically create new checkpoints that would be manned by the Afghan police and army he wanted it to be and this is during a period where although it hadn't been announced we were withdrawing we knew it was going to be coming so it was definitely a period Herrick 14 was a period where I think politically they wanted to show that we that we were winning, that we were able to be in a position to transfer authority back to the Afghans. And and we could definitely do that in certain areas. Um, and I think this was a, a show that the Afghans could run their own operation, they could clear their own area, they could secure checkpoints. Um, the reality was we were obviously holding their hands um, so it was a big, you know, it was a couple of thousand people involved. It was the big, you know, you know, there's always a big op every kind of tour. And this was the big op. And 4-2 Commander's job within it was to secure a village called Loimanda, Calais. Um, and this was, this had been secured years previously, but it was in what's called the tri-boundary area. So it kind of sat between, in the, in the kind of where three different battle group area of operations met. And because it was kind of at the extremities, you don't have the manpower to obviously cover you know vast areas of ground there's no way you can cover it all and so it was a, it was a taliban hot it was a known taliban hotspot area 
And so Fortu's job was to secure that village. And so the ops company were going to go in and they would be, they would, they'd be prepared to task was to basically create a checkpoint to be there for kind of six to eight weeks. Um, and whilst the, the police then further to the north and east uh, were creating their checkpoints above this uh, canal. So J Company's job was, well, in essence, to draw the insurgents out of Loimanda um, in order to allow Lima Company to enter the village and kind of start setting up their checkpoint uh, as unhindered as possible. And so I guess so for two commandos, job was to lure the insurgents to their location for the brigade. And J Company's job was to lure the insurgents to our location. So Lima, so we, it, it was, yeah, literally, I guess <laughs> the lads called it op tethered goat. Which <laughs> it's a classic. We all know, and it, you know, it is. It's, it's you laughing because you know it is a classic tactic. Yeah. Um, and you know, it, unfortunately, it worked, it worked very well, almost too well. Um, interestingly, actually, I had a, I was having a conversation with someone who's a seer of a different unit uh, lit, like a few weeks ago, and I've not seen him for years. He's now, you know, he'd left the corps, and. Yeah, he was telling me that he he was back in the brigade HQ and he was um, listening into the communications when we first went in on this op. And apparently, the Taliban from all the the real bad guys just descended to our location. Um, and so, yeah, it was yeah we fortunately we secured this temporary check. I identified with my intelligence officer a compound that would work for us that we could basically man for seven to ten days had you know decent size we could get we were deployed with 112 guy had a 12 man ied team as well and 100 guys so it was a big old big old deployment you know we had kind of two or three chinooks and four merlin you know all the attack helicopters go it was a, it was a punchy kind of and we were going in two days ahead of the brigade d-day and one day ahead of lima company who was going into the village um <clears throat> The main concern initially was obviously coming under contact before we'd even got into this compound because we were carrying a lot of kit. We knew it was going to be, um, we, we were kind of poking the hornet's nest. And so I'd, we doubled up on all ammunition scales, food, water, because I was told, look, you, we cannot guarantee that we're going to be able to resupply you within in the first 24 hours. Because I'd say, look, within 24 hours, we're going to need this, this, you know, just as you know, just water and food, you know, you need six liters a man per day just water and then got the you know rations and everything else then you throw in ammunition and i'd i'd said to the guys right you need to double up on everything because you know we, we may not get resupplied and certainly in the first 24 48 hours and then you know we wanted to take in as much kit as we could uh, we, you know we get sandbags doesn't sound like much we start throwing it all in and then we had thermal imaging cameras on a massive try, you know, we kind of, you know, the guys are kind of, you know, they use their initiative and, you know, some of my recce guys, they'd kind of commandeered an eight meter signals mast and they'd made a way of attaching the thermal imaging camera so we could have this up, you know, but all this kit weighs a bloody ton. This is the stuff you put on vehicles normally. So the Bergens were massive. And so I did not want to get contacted getting into the compound. Fortunately, we didn't. We secured it. And then throughout the day, we, we kind of came under sporadic fire and you know i now realize well, i realized later on that day they were, they were probing attacks you know these guys were well trained they weren't your typical ten dollar taliban they knew what they were doing because the first one came from one area the next one came from the opposite area then 90 degrees the other way and they were literally just kind of working out where we were what you know how we reacted 
and then they left it till um, nightfall. So we'd have probably had three or four kind of firefights during the day, and it was, you know, this was kind of been on the, you know, been in contact before. But these were these were punchy. They were different, and you know, one of them they got. Yeah, we could because you know they knew what they were doing. They had little you know firing holes, doubled back, so they'd be behind three compound walls with you know firing point holes. So you know you just can't you can't get to them. And I actually literally had to bring in a at one point where they got to the, the next you know kind of compound along, and it was only a, a, a strafing run from a jet that kind of stopped them getting any closer. You know I couldn't drop anything else, and I had to call in a danger close gun run. Um, and so you know it was we were like okay yeah these guys unfortunately we hadn't taken any casualties at this point but they they kind of it was an eye opener then in the evening then we got attacked again in darkness then you know they really are you know kind of know what they're doing um and throughout throughout the day they'd actually been obviously they'd been popping in um uh, rpgs rocket propulsion grenades and underslung grenades and they initially they'd, they'd fall short then they'd go long and then that evening, whack straight in the middle. You know, they'd kind of got their range and they knew what they're doing. And unfortunately, a couple of two or three guys had got DMV, and so we'd segregated them in an area because we didn't want the rest of the guys to kind of get ill. And one of the grenades landed right, you know, kind of in their area. So they'd, again, um, luckily it was minor, fairly minor injuries. And there was a, because there was a dust storm at Bastion, we couldn't get there. So we. we we kind of silenced their the, the attack, but then when we tried to get the the injured guys out, uh, the, they were like, "Look, we can't take off at Bastion because they, they weren't cat cat A. They could, you know, they, they weren't critical, but you know, they needed casivacking. Uh, one of them was actually the so we we taken in a detachment of um, a small. I don't even know what it's called now. UA small UAV that they'd. You know, they'd launch from Bastion, but there's a guy with a, again, this thing weighed about 50 kilos. This, this kit, Her- Hermes, not Hermes. No, that's the bigger one, wasn't it? It was, it was kind of, you know, this, it was a maybe wingspan of a couple of meters, but it would, it would go kind of 20, 30k. Oh. So it would be launched at Bastion, um, and then controlled from this by this guy. This, like, he was an artillery guy, I think. Um, and so it was, it was the one really decent bit of uh, integral um, uh, kit that I had that I could control. Whereas obviously UAVs up at ten thousand foot, that was my boss and above. And you know, I couldn't say I want to go and look here. That was his job, and he got a bit of shrapnel in his neck. And I was like, Ooh, I kind of come. I said, look, you know, kind of patched him up. I said, look, I really need you to stay. <laughs> stay. <laughs> so we got the helicopter in the next day to get out the other guys, but managed to convince him to kind of st- stay with us. Um, and then over, over, then we kind of we kind of opened up. We started cl- clearing the firing positions from that the the day before. The, the next day and started pushing out clearance patrols and then um we did a fighting patrol up to loy mander where we could then link up with lima company and so first couple of days had kind of gone all right unfortunately we, i think it was day three uh during one of these clearance patrols one of the guys got shot um in the chest and it, we got him out and you know he kind of he, he recovered but he was it was all kind of, you know, as you know, what we'd call fair play. You know, it was all, it was fire fight. It was all kind of like, um, you know, what you'd expect, I suppose. And then once the brigade uh, mission had started, there we started to push east into areas where we knew there was potential IED factory. And so we were then we pushed out a couple of cases about five days into this op now. And we were probably, we knew we'd be, our job would be over. No, probably no longer than seven days. 
um, but we were still drawing a lot of insurgents to our kind of our area. And on this, so the day before I got injured, we were we, I went out with uh, three multiples. So one multiple under Ollie Augustine, he had his guys plus uh, a, the, the section of A and A. So he he kind of numbered about eighteen. Um, I had another multiple which was about 10 or 12 guys and then a recce multiple that I had my uh, company TAC headquarters so I took out myself uh, my fire support team commander so he could you know control artillery etc and his forward air controller so we could talk to the jets so that was just yeah my TAC light I just go very light just the three of us uh, in fact I didn't even take a signaler on that and so then i'd attach myself to my recce multiple obviously for security for all the electronic countermeasures equipment and so on so it was 45 50 guys maybe um so big enough that i wanted to be on the ground rather than staying in the temporary checkpoint because it was it's so much easier if you you're actually in amongst it doing it rather than kind of i'm very much lead from the front rather than from the, the, the back you know i'm not saying either way is the right way that's how i like to do it and that's how i felt i kind of got respect to the guys so we were we were patrolling out east, uh, you know, pepper potting, you know, fire not fire maneuver, but you know, kind of as you do, one foot on the ground all the time, and it was going well. I think we'd, we'd probably been on the ground three hours. Got to about midday, and we'd kind of said, right, we're going to go firm for a period, and, and each each multiple would kind of, you know, obviously secure the compound that they were in, and then guys could then kind of have a bit of a break because it's you know, fifty degrees just moving a couple of K in that, certainly in an area where we knew it was, you know, something was probably going to happen. It was hard going. Um, and we were at that point, we, I'd gone firm with the recce multiple and we were in this compound and the guys, there was like a, a small courtyard area. And so I positioned myself there where I could see where my other multiples were in the other compounds. A couple of, sorry, Ollie's uh, multiple were a couple hundred meters to my south. And then Rob, my other multiple commander, his were a couple of hundred meters to the east and in between us all there was actually a taliban graveyard and we specifically avoided that because it was a you know a known area for potential ieds and um the the reports so we thought all these guys we thought they were in what was potentially the an old o and id factory and they'd they'd gone in secured it cleared it as you do put up sentries then called forward the rest of the guys to kind of man man it whilst they were going to take a break and it was actually i think it was actually how the compound we were in when the guys started searching it found all sorts of stuff and so it's probably our one that it might have been you know we don't know for sure because things suddenly kicked off and we couldn't kind of um you know properly make the most of you know what, what was it that what was there uh basically there's a you know large explosion you know typical sound that crump that ied makes and so i'm at this point i've kind of got my back to a low compound wall and they're so they're directly behind me 200 meters behind me i'm sat next to my one of my stripes the recce multiple commander and so there's this explosion behind us i turn around to my left to look round to look round what's going on say to him right get the guys we're going to need to be you're going to move in any second um Whilst I'm saying that, I get on the radio, you know, contact, ID, my location. Obviously, we well, kind of knew that because I could see it. And then there's an explosion where I am knocked off my feet and it's kind of dust and covered in crap and blood. And I was like, shit, who is it? Number off. Who, who's been hit? Who's been hit? Got everyone's numbering off. And I'm like, what? 
I said, well, it's got to be someone who is it? I'm covered, you know, covered in claret. Who's been here? And then I remember the, F- the FAC show, it's a goat, it's a fucking goat. And they looked up in the trees above us and this goat had plastered himself all over the place. <laughs> and I, so initially we were like, I thought we'd cut, you know, I thought this was a coordinated like, RPG attack follow up from the IED. <laughs> Fucking goat set the idea. The goat and set it off. <laughs> but this, and this thing, and we kind of looked down, and it was literally where it was. It was just to the right of where we'd been sitting, or, to, or actually closest to where my, you know, stripy demo had been. He was, um, he was probably a meter to his right, and so he, he fortunately he went dead ahead, and I went left when the other ID had gone off to see what was going. He went into the compound to get his guys. I looked left to get kind of get eyes on what was going on. And, and the fucking was, goat and it, set it off. And the goat set it off to our right. Lucky. Yeah, massively. And so then, but then obviously I'm then kind of like, you know, we're trying to put Christ this, you know, and then we've got guys. And then, then it starts coming through, you know, got multiple casualties, uh, you know, and the guy, it was, it was kicking off bid time. The ICOM chatter was off the charts. And so, you know, again, it's you know, basically we have a, you know, each multiple as an interpreter, they carry a radio, and so we can listen into Taliban communications. And the radio's called the ICOM, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and then they can report back what's being said. And um, my interpreter's, you know, he kind of, he's, he's like, oh, you know, Major Steve, Major Steve, you know, the, 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 they're saying they're going in to finish them off, they're going in to finish them off, and then we could, and then on my interpreter's radio, I've, I've then got reports from, you know, what's going on, um, you know, tragically, my troop commander Ollie, he he'd been se- severely injured later, died. Uh, one of his Marines, uh, Sam Alexander, who you know he'd he'd won an MC on a previous tour, uh, quality guy. Uh, my company medic, Cass Little, he'd he'd been injured. Uh, another one of the Marines, JJ, had been injured. Interpreter had taken a hit, who later went on and died. And, another, and this was a you know, this was a, a serious blast, and basically the. The, the Afghan army that were with them just legged it. And so the multiple there it was, it was you know, corporal left, you know, Ollie's two IC was a corporal. Um, you know, they only had, they only had a handful of guys cause half of them had been fucking decimated from this blast. And so, you know, this, I talk now, you know, this was all, you know, matter of, you know, tens of seconds, minute, this was all obviously happening very quick, but at the same time, these guys initially were having to deal with this kind of devastation. You know, cast the med. You know, his med bergen had been incinerated. So there was no med kit. Um, the guys also. So then, on our on uh, my interpreter's radio, I then start hearing the screams of the guys that have been injured. Oh. And so I'm like, yeah. shit! They are literally about to storm the compound. Um, and so and then we're kind of like thinking, right? We're in a compound that's obviously got IEDs in. And so I've we've just you know I've been knocked off my feet with this ID trying to control what's going on, thinking well I'm not going to I'm knelt here, I'm not going to move for the time being because we know what's going. So then I'm like right we need to start clearing a path that although we've cleared in we need to clear out again because you know as you do you can't get every ID you're going to miss them. And the day it's just a metal detector trying to pick up some metal batteries or wires, and they always remote them. Well they were starting to remote batteries from the IDs, and so. I knew that it was going to take us a good few minutes to get to them. And so I, I looked across to Rob Driscoll, who's in command of the other multiple. And I remember about to get on the radio and I was going to have to, I was going to, have to say to him, right, you've got to go, you've got to go, you've got to go across that Taliban graveyard. 
and get to them because we are we are literally we're having to kind of get out of this compound before we can get across there as i went on the radio to say it, he came on the net and was like right i'm going we're moving out and i see him line his guys up outside the compound and they just go for it um so fortunately they got there pretty quickly and he had another navy medic with him who was excellent excellent and you know the the, the guys um who initially deal with the situation um you know they did an amazing job trying to kind of you really know, think i remember you know once they'd kind of got some morphine in Cass and jake you know they were having to say, look we're gonna have to leave you now and go and sort out these other guys that are far worse than you just keep screaming um you know if you're screaming we know you you you're still you're still around but there's other guys that are worse off and they had to go and kind of do what they could for for sam and ollie and um abdullah the interpreter Oh, the Turk got whacked as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And later, he later on died in hospital. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, Sam and Ollie were not in a good way. And, you know, the, the guys continued, you know, giving battlefield first aid until um, it was the Pedro's American helicopter came in, in the end because it was, you know, it was a hot, hot area. Um, but, yeah, I think, you know, they, they, they were dead from there. You know, we, we cannot obviously declare anyone dead because we're not doctors. Only a doctor can do that. But they, they were in a, you know, a really bad way. Mm. Um, and then Abdullah died, yeah, the interpreter died in, in Camp Bastion. Uh, JJ and Cass got back. JJ, uh, Cass had, uh, had a leg blown off. Uh, his other leg was kind of fairly gnarly. <clears throat> kind of, I think he lost, he kind of got it back but he kind of fractured eye socket his eye was out you know all sorts of stuff you know jj had looked like he'd basically been sandblasted you know just you know it was this basically the idea they were in a, an archway of this compound and you know had kind of had metal doors either side and you know it'd been cleared with the with the the valon metal detectors um but because of the arch, the IED kind of reverberate, you know, it, it obviously finds the path of least resistance, which was kind of sideways out of this. And so the guys, um, based on either end of the arch, you know, so JJ was on one end, he kind of basically, it was almost like he was being stoned, I guess, just by house bricks at a kind of rapid rate. And his, his flesh was ripped from him. He just looked a mess. Um, but actually, he was one of the ones that was, you know, not, not as bad as the other guys. Anyway, we, you know, we kind of um, got them out. The Pe- Pedros came in, and I, I think, I think the fact that we had enough manpower there, there was no further, there were no further attacks because we, all we were waiting for was the next kind of next attack to kind of follow in. But I think by that point, we had, I had a, you know, every asset was kind of turned to me. You know, when you suddenly get mass casualty situation, um, you know, I did have everything on call from, you know predators to apaches to jets to whatever we need you know i think the noise and the, the number of i think they probably surprised that i we kind of suddenly popped up with another 30 40 odd guys was enough that they didn't try and kind of get, go in and you know finish them off thankfully then you know those were left from that, that multiple so once we got the you know the, the dead and injured um kazivak back to bastion there's a period you know kind of take stock and I remember my CEO coming up on the net and saying, right, you need to go firm, secure the area because we've got the high readiness force coming in to try and exploit what's gone on. So the high readiness force were uh, counter IED specialists, um, but they were there also to, to take forensics to try and kind of get as much information and evidence from the scene 
to start picturing ied you know they, they could actually start you know identifying ied makers because they'd leave fingerprints they, the way they'd build them and the, the brigade were pretty keen that um they came in i was like look you know it's now kind of i don't know what it was two two in the two three in the afternoon you know it was getting darker i said we got 2k to get back we got a patrol back i don't want to be doing that like i said you know we need to be out of here no later than 1800 because they said that the high readiness force wouldn't be flown in till about kind of half four five yeah, so we secured the area um and you know you got got you know this place was a mess as you can imagine you know broken kit weapons body parts guys were in a mess because you know, they just seen their best mates blown apart they just done all their canters you know it was it was and so there were guys that were shaken so we kind of got them off to the side um uh secured the, the actual compound itself and i basically stopped anyone out anyone that didn't need to go in we kept them out because we just didn't need guys seeing things that they didn't need to see um and started kind of you know issuing out the bits of kit and stuff that was left over you know because there was you know assault ladders and bergens and weapons all broken apart and radio kit and all this stuff we had to salvage and start giving to each all the other guys because we couldn't leave it behind um body parts as well and uh so and it got to about five o'clock and i was like right if these don't turn you know we, anyway the, the, the high readiness force landed on and i spoke to the oc officer commanding and um he was like oh so what's the, you know we've been given a brief before we left and they were they were fairly nervous because they'd known what had gone on the previous five days they knew they were in a fairly punchy area and they were quite kind of like all a bit like and i said look well look you know, you've got to go in and do your thing. And here you go. And I started walking towards you. What are you doing? I said, well, I'm going to show you where it went off. Went, no, no, we've got to clear a path into the compound. I said, right. I said, I, said, I was like, we've been walking around this whole thing for the last three hours. Um, was it a bit naive? Well, the problem was we'd, we thought we'd already secured it. We clearly had it. It's what, how many, you know, you could probably go into a compound and secure it three or four times, clear it for IEDs, but actually still miss one. But they, he was obviously doing it by the book. And so he started at the gate um, and it was like 25, 30 meters before you even got to the archway where this had gone off. And I was like, Christ, this is good. You know, I said, look, we need to be out of 1800 because they'd also been told that they were going to have to come back with us to our temporary checkpoint. So they're going to have to patrol back with us. So they were shitting themselves about that um, and stay a night and then get flown out the next day. And so there I said, look, we're leaving at six. That's it. You've got to you know, do work quickly fair playing incredibly he kind of you know it was on his belly he cleared a you know cleared a, another a new route in uh all the way up there exploited the actual explosion site he identified where and at, with the uh, the wires had actually so the battery pack was actually off out the arch round the corner and then down buried down the side of a compound wall and he said he'd seen it before he said he'd so he the good thing was that he'd actually recognized this type of tactic the way the way the wires had been kind of dug in the way they'd followed compound walls and the fact that they were they were probably what, eight meters away okay and you know, out the archway <coughs> along a wall buried down in the ground was the battery pack and so there's no way you can clear every inch of a compound um and they knew what they, you know they kind of they knew what they were doing and but I, was, I remember thinking that's good effort to, and so you know, and they got the forensics and so on. And I was like, right, it was like five plus six or whatever. It was pretty. You're just after. I was like, right, we're going. We need to get moving. 
So we start patrolling back. We split. We kind of break back down into multiples. You know what's left of Ollie's. Kind of we attach them to Rob's, and then I think I had the high redness force with myself and the recce multiple. We went back into two files, um, and I remember got literally hundred meters from the temporary checkpoint, and Rob comes up on the radio, and he's like, "I can see a there's a leg hanging in a tree." Like, what are you on about? He said, I can see a leg hanging in a tree. And I'm immediately thinking, I can't be where from what we've done because we, we ensured there was no body parts left around in the compound. And she's, I'm going to go and get it. I said, oh, stop, go firm. It's a booby trap. Stop, 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 stop. And as, as we said that, then there's grenades and um, oh, machine gun fire where he was. And so they were ambushed and it was basically, it was a come on. And so then we get it. I get into the compound and then the, uh, the temporary checkpoint comes under attack as well. So I've now, and the problem was for the, where Rob and his guys were, they were going to, they were going to have to kind of almost withdraw under contact into where we were having to kind of repel from another attack. And so then I suddenly had this kind of like serious concern for blue on blue. Uh, Again, fortunately, because of what had gone on, we had loads of assets um and so we actually had a predator and they we put a couple of hellfire from predator into where the um machine gun fire and where they were ambushed from uh, at the same time and i remember i remember i can remember seeing his guys pepper you know awesome withdrawing <coughs> under contact drills pepper pot you know the kind of jungle drills going down this irrigation ditch awesome drills and then we were having to move sweeping fire as our guys were kind of literally firing in front of them it was all and you know there was i think uh, I'm not going to say it was, it was it was all down to me there was a lot of luck that we didn't have a blue and blue there was so much going on we had artillery as well at, sorry artillery mortars firing in um it was you know it was a big old situation and amazingly thankfully no one was injured and and whilst they were withdrawing out he managed to actually grab this leg um that we, so was it what, one of the legs from your guys no it turned tragically it turned out to be uh the leg from a, a at Lima Company, a lad from Lima Company who'd been killed two weeks earlier, about five k away. Jesus Christ! And so I know, and it was one of those things where I thought at the time, thank God I, you know, because that's that's what's the kind of that's what they were doing, you know. And this this story has been told by a few people before. Um, I've not heard it. Yeah, okay. I've not heard it. No. <laughs> and it's um, as in other people's story, you know, maybe it's been done. It was used, but it, that's the kind of you know the levels they they'd go to. Um. And you know, so we we get back in. There's you know, it's by now it's been a lot. You know, it was our definite our longest day, so to speak. Um, got to about midnight, and you know, the CEO tells you, right, you, you need to write. You know, you start thinking about eulogies and all this kind of stuff. Uh, you got to brief the lads. There's guys that were like still covered in blood, kind of you know, not in a good way. Saying right, I need to get out of here. You need to get me out of here. You know, they dealt with some pretty horrific stuff that day. Uh, and you're told, I remember saying, all right, burn your, burn your uniform, get on your one spare set of uniform, you know, just, you know, hunker down, you know, because A, we need you here, and B, I'm not calling a helicopter to get you kind of repatriated f- for a number of reasons I won't even go into. But what, you know, one, you don't want to be, the, you know. And anyway, so it gets to the, the next day, and you know, you patrol, you've got to go on, you patrols have got to go out again. You've got to crack on. You've got to crack, crack on. on. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, you know the, the guys that uh, uh, that were in a bad way they they'd kind of they, you know they, they were really good they'd kind of 
sorted out their heads you know and i'd said to them look i'm not going to make you ground patrol today but you know i need you here to be you know ready to defend a, the temporary checkpoint because we'd already come under attack numerous times i said but look i won't you know make you go out on the ground and so we went out so in the end i said right i said to again rob and damo um right you know we need to go out again and so a couple of multiples two stripes yeah i didn't need to go out because you know I, that yeah that could have easily been led by them but this this was definitely me thinking right i you know i'm going to lead from the front Leave, yeah yeah this yeah, is me i want to you know kind of yeah. i think the guys respected that 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 fact it was you know blokes did not want to go out that gate yeah and that is the, 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 a prime example of the situation where you've got to do it exactly and you know, i remember my company to ic who's back in um you know our, our patrol base he's still lead, you know he's still he's kind of running what's left of the company uh, half you know you know good 80 odd guys and all the checkpoints the patrols going on back there he's running with all that you know day-to-day business ground holding is, is, is still ongoing and uh, i remember him saying to me so look you don't you don't need to go on this and i said i know you're right and my company intelligence officer who i'd taken with me forward um he said he, to be fair all, <laughs> all him and my fire support team commander but particular fire support team gone he didn't want to go I, he said they were like you don't need to go out and i said i know i don't however we've had a shitty few days particularly <coughs> crap day yesterday uh guys don't want to go out um and therefore you know it's kind of it's it's what i want to do i want to lead by example um and so i said so i said to my fst command i said sorry that means you're coming and you <laughs> uh, fac um Bob, bomb, bombardier obviously was his rank, but I always used to call him Bob, <laughs> Bob Flynn, bombardier Flynn, Bob Flynn. So anyway, um, and uh, so we deployed it again. I, I attached the three of us to recce multiple, and we went out, you know, to, with the, the two multiples and back into the the same area because uh, we still had to kind of, you know, certainly I wanted to go back to the, the the compound where we'd been in that we'd had to leave quickly because, again, I wanted to kind of, you know, see if we can gather further evidence from what was going on there. Uh, th- there was clearly a very different atmosphere going back into that area, as you can imagine. Um, atmosphere, what, with your group or with the... No, no, sorry. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, there, there weren't, there were hardly any civvies around in this area anyway. Um, what were definitely had, had kind of disappeared now. And you know we we knew we were being watched, uh, dickers as we call them. Um, uh, we we get about two two and a bit hours in, we came under contact and it was heavy machine gun fire. And I as I remember literally we got into this ditch and I literally kind of getting as much as I could in uh, into the water. And I was like worried that although I had obviously my radio in a waterproof bag in my, I was like Christ, I was trying to remember trying to keep the radio out of the water and we was we were all kind of like this is sustained machine gun fire and it turned out i think it was actually i mean it's all by the by now i think it was actually from a, a battle group to our east because it's, it was like i was like this is a sustained and b very much like gpmg fire oh, were I, the rounds landing in and around you oh yeah yeah we were literally on our belt buckles um and so because i remember either i don't remember saying i'll get on the neck it's coming from i'm because i because we, we were in an ops box. We'd be given an ops box to operate in what was the tri-boundary area. Um, and 
you know, I was thinking, I was thinking it's coming for, I can't remember the name of the checkpoint. There was a checkpoint that was kind of, I guess they're Northern, I think it was the Scots. I can't remember which, which battle group it was. Um, I don't know because a load of shit went on the rest of the day and it, it, it was what it was. I mean, fortunately, you know, I remember it, I remember me getting on the net saying, I'm sure we're coming under fire from our own, you know, just get it up the net. This is us here. This is us, you know, operating in this area. They shouldn't be firing into an ops box anyway. Um, but it was like, I was like, Christ, this is, yeah, pucker. Um, refine. And I was like, we swung around and I thought, actually, you know what? Uh, we're not going to go to the compound. We've, we've been, by this point, we've been out three hours um we're gonna head back we'll we'll do it the next day or whatever um and so we were patrolling back and i was probably i was probably seventh in line in the patrol you know usual five meter spacings between each 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 bloke and we we went and there's a couple of in well they turn out to be insurgents but you know a couple of afghans clearly you know kind of looking suspicious and i remember looking at them through my scope because they were a good few hundred meters away and i think they're just they're definitely following they're definitely reporting back um but you know until they pose an imminent threat to you or someone else there's nothing you can do about it and i remember uh walking into this irrigation ditch so you always you know you always avoid the vulnerable points which the crossing points so you kind of you know you 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 choose the the hardest terrain to go through because in theory it's the, the most unlikely place that they're going to plant an ied although they obviously got used to those tactics as well because they'd realized that we would avoid the crossing points and this is what they've done in this situation so i was probably about about five meters down so if you can imagine there's an irrigation ditch running across our frontage that we have to go across the crossing points five meters to my right i'm now in the bottom of the irrigation ditch it's probably about three three foot deep and about a foot foot and a half of water in the bottom of it crossing points to my right and then suddenly that you know there's an enormous explosion i remember the explosion and i remember hitting you know being knocked hard to the floor like even hit by a car and then because of the day before i remember thinking fucking hell someone you know i was like i remember again time did it sounds cliche time did slow down um because what happened next was probably a second if that a couple of seconds but it felt like um you know it was quite a long period and i remember i remember initially thinking someone else has been hit um and i remember um then I do. I remember hearing someone. I heard someone say, "Ah, oh, my legs!" And so I thought, "Okay, somebody's been blown up, lost their legs. I'm in the periphery." And then I went to kind of uh, move, and then the pain hit me like a sledgehammer, and it felt like someone had kind of basically got a large implement and driven it through my chest. I couldn't feel my legs, and then I went to breathe, and it was, it was, it was there was just this kind of bizarre you're on your back at this point uh i'm on my side and so i'm in the water and and so i'm trying i remember half my face is kind of in the water and i'm just like and each time i go to breathe my mouth's out the water but there's this like kind of big noise coming from my chest area um i was like you know you're thinking this is not good and i can't couldn't feel my legs and i thought actually shit it's me i've been here and so and then so all this is kind of as me i'm trying to then actually get kind of air into me i could i could wiggle my toes and i thought okay so i've got my legs there's something i've got there's something else going on here uh and then then there's this um 
uh, my FST commander kind of crawls into the ditch. And so this is probably within, you know, fairly rapidly, 10, 20 seconds, I don't know. And it was him who'd shouted about his legs and he'd got some shrapnel in his legs, but he'd then crawled into the ditch because he'd seen it was me who'd taken the brunt. And so then he's, and I'm like kind of, by this point, I'm in, you know, proper shit situation. He's trying to like get my head out of the water because I'm then something like, you know, almost drowning as well as kind of got this massive sucking chest wound. Um, but he can't, you know, he's he's got, you know, shrapnel in his lower leg, so he can't kind of, he can't shift me. And I remember the guys then kind of saying, well, don't move, we're coming back. We're coming. I was like, I can't fucking move anywhere anyway. <laughs> but, but I kind of, and then one of the stripe, you know, go firm secondary devices and initially i was like oh sh- shit they're gonna take a while until they get here but then i thought good drills actually that's really good drills and i could hear them kind of clearing a path to me because they you know weren't weren't sure if there's gonna be other other devices and so then the first couple of guys got there dragged me out of the ditch um and then yeah start doing the old battlefield first aid meanwhile then um so forward air controller he then calls in show of force because we then have we had a jet on on station and uh i can't remember this all all, then we come under con the rounds going down um and so then rob's maneuvering his guys around and so this is where i suppose obviously i'm still trying to kind of control things and actually i'm I'm not controlling anything (laughs) they're just telling me to shut the fuck up and uh ford air controller bob as i call him he brought in this, and that was, I suppose that's the first big thing I remember was this, the, the noise and heat and this jet. And the, the lads have since told me they have never seen a jet come in so low. And so he's on the net, and the, the jet pilots actually said to him, um, I've just seen an explosion down in your, you know, what, you know, is it in your, and he's like, ah, it's my sunray, my sunray's been hit. We, you know, we need a show of force immediately. And so this jet comes in, and at, they were like literally it was like scraping the compounds and i remember it was like a bloody earthquake this thing and it kind of roared over uh one of my stripes put a couple of 40 mils into where the guys had set off the i anyway they basically neutralized the threat secured the area started working on me by this point i suppose i am i suppose i am uh, there's a point where the pain disappears and I suppose it was, well, I can't remember every little thing. So I suppose I told a bit of a lie earlier. But the um, there's there's definitely a point where, uh, it, yeah, the pain disappears. And, you know, it starts to kind of, I start to get the old tunnel vision. And it's, again, yeah, this this also sounds cliched. But I, you know, I'd, I came to terms with dying. There was, um, you know, I'm not a religious person. But this, yeah, was definitely me accepting my fate. Um, and I only mention that because having gone through that uh, situation and come out the other side, it, um, it I look at life in a very different way. I live life in a d- very different way. I, I certainly live for the moment. I don't go around doing stupid, crazy things. But I, you know, I am aware of how fragile life is and the fact that I came to terms with literally, you know, I properly thought this is it. Um, in hindsight may have just been going unconscious i don't know because i remember the guy as you know you don't you know you make sure guys don't go to sleep because that is their body set shutting down and so they're slapping me around the face don't go to sleep don't go to sleep and then then you can hear the old sound of the chinook coming in 
and that was yeah, proper reassuring because you know if you're gonna if you get on board the Chinook, you've got a whatever it is. I think it got it to about ninety five, ninety. I don't know the statistic, but it's high. If you get on that Chinook, then you've got a really strong chance of surviving. And we know the you know guys with you know serious triple amputees, all sorts of you know, guys have survived some serious shit. And so hearing that, I then was like, okay, I'm gonna make. I remember that. I do remember vividly thinking, okay, I'm gonna make it. I'm gonna be all right. Um, and yeah, I remember being stretched on and it's another comedy moment. So yeah, it's just a bivy bag. So there's four guys on each corner. Uh, they secured the HLS with the Mert lands on. And it's actually cheeky. Actually, one of my stripes had said it was when he first called in the, the medivac, he'd said it was a, he would said it, he was like, cause he knew that we needed a Mert. He, he kind of basically said it, it was clear when it wasn't. Fortunately, by the time it had landed, it was it was clear, and uh, it landed on. Anyway, as, as the guys are running along, obviously the ramp comes down. You've got the door gunner there with the the GPMG in the centre of the ramp. And obviously, the blokes are just yeah, kind of like charging on. And next thing, basically, they 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 as you do run on either side of the GPMG when you but- go. You're in the middle. I'm in the middle on this stretch, <laughs> stretch and the full, and they charge up and they smash me into the GPMG. I think Dorgan's like, "What the fuck are you doing?" Um, so I didn't get this GPMG to the back of the head, but to be honest, that's the least of my worries. And I remember being dumped in the back of the Chinook, um, and so this was my last kind of um, uh, conscious thought or moment of sight. Uh, the this guy kind of leant over me had an aircrew helmet on. It said "Doctor" across the top, and I remember shouting, "Put me to sleep, please! Put me to sleep! Put me to sleep!" And he leant over. He said, "This is gonna hurt, but you'll be all right." And then he drilled ketamine into me, and bosh, that was me. Uh, then in three weeks, then I was out of it in really? a coma. Yeah. What were the injuries? So I'd I'd taken uh, so uh, working from. But it was all down the right hand side. Directional fragmentation charge, charge set off by these guys. Um, I'd taken shrapnel to the lower calves. Uh, was it fib tib, patella broken? Wiped the cartilage out of my right knee, bottom of my femur, big hole in my top of my feet, leg. Um, what? It wiped. What, say say that again. But the femur. Oh, no, so so basically, yeah, a load of shrapnel had like wiped the cartilage out of out of my. So it broke, yeah, a fib tib patella femur, uh, cartilage. I only said the cartilage because that's one of my issues now. You broke the femur, yeah, bottom. Yeah. The, the end. To be fair, it wasn't kind of through the centre. Although it's bizarre, I had this massive it hole. Doesn't in, make it any better. No, <laughs> I had this massive hole in my right leg. Like serious. This kind of. Um, what am I saying? That what's that? Four inches wide, three inches diameter. Big, big old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, big old hole and amazing it didn't break it anyway and then but the uh, it's got some arm injuries I kind of nearly severed the older nerve a few bits but the, the, what was the, the bad injury was I had a massive hole in my chest right hand side uh, fracture load of ribs torn my chest apart lung all sorts of bits a shitload of crap in there uh, and you can almost straight basically I, I was in a position where a bit of a uh, a kind of a running position you know I had I, as I was stepping out of the irrigation ditch and so I had my arm, my right arm to the back. And so what had happened, the the blast had gone through, the, the, the side plate had done its job, got nothing there, lower kind of lower chest area, where the Kevlar, you know, the, the, the body armor, it blown through the body armor and put a big hole in basically under my armpit. And then I've got this big hole in my leg at, at the top, you know, I saw this kind of three inch diameter hole, maybe two, two inch, I'm exaggerating. 
and then my legs clear where I had my pistol pistol took a load of the blood and it's my low and so you can kind of see the bits that kind of save body parts by my pistol the plate um and uh anyway they by the time they got me to bastion uh they um you know put me through the ct scanner and they thought like okay chest injuries what we need to deal with that's what's life-threatening so they cut me open that's the microphone moving uh right across my back so kind of from my spine through to my armpit um split the rib cage and they went in and basically to try and find out what was going on internally and i think apparently i've been told i do actually have photos as well i managed to get my photos from the slab from bastion that's rare yeah you do well you can you can actually there is a way of under freedom of information getting them gdpr yeah (laughs) oh it was before that came in but yeah (laughs) similar thing yeah and um so they'd uh yeah they they, they, apparently they dug out body armor shrapnel stones clothing mud all sorts of shit from my chest cavity yeah it'd gone right in and they uh, the surgeons were like okay stabilize me as best they can they thought you know we're just going to staple them together keep him in a coma and send him back to the uk and let them deal deal with me basically and so i was next day back in the uk uh queen elizabeth hospital birmingham but by the, time, by the time i got back there i think my body was riddled with infections i'm on a ventilate you know ventilate you know breathing for me and all and all sorts and um and so because of that situation they just they kind of kept having to do little life-saving type ops apparently and th- these are only things i found out much later on i remember that apparently there was a time where i actually d- died in intensive care but they didn't tell my family clearly they didn't want to because i survived really? well it was, it was bizarre i was actually at jj chalmers um his wedding and there was a consultant there was jj the other guy in the ground were you? He, he got injured the day before That's- Ah, oh, that's the guy you were talking about. You said JJ. Okay. Yeah, sorry, yeah, JJ. I, I, I did, I did yeah, yeah. And my fire support team commander was called JJ as well. He got injured with me. He got um, basically some shrapnel on his lower legs. He ended up he, getting flown back with me on the same plane. I mean, tell, he was so I'm in a coma on the the, the uh, is it C-cast? Yeah, the, the, you know the the, the, the big C seventeen surgical aeroplane, and I'm out of it. And he's kind of like you know kind of in a bed, can't obviously get out of it, but is like wide awake and charmers. No, this is now JJ. Your, this your, is now my fire sports yeah, team right, commander, yeah, yeah, yeah. and he was it was a nightmare because he was strapped down, and we were stuck in Cyprus apparently on the on the runway for a few hours, and he was just like it took forever to get back to the UK, and he said, "Yeah, there was a, a slight moment where he wished he was in my position, kind of unconscious, but then that soon disappeared." <laughs> he actually made it out to the back end of the tour as well. He did the last few weeks. Anyway, sorry, I digress. Um, yeah, back back to. Uh, back to QE and uh, they they basically just kept me on life support because on a ventilator because my body was just kind of getting riddled with infection and getting worse and worse and they thought I think I wouldn't survive another kind of major operation to start digging stuff out of my chest um, but I wasn't kind of healing I was getting but infection was kind of taking hold but at the same time my body, you know, didn't want to kind of breathe for itself. I was on a ventilator at this point. And so they, they tried something apparently fairly revolutionary at the time using an oscillator, which is a different type of breathing machine. They normally use it for, for infants. And uh, that basically, it, rather than where a ventilator will still breathe, so, you you know, your, your chest will still move, your lungs will still inflate and deflate. Um, problem is with that, it's hard for then, you know, if you've got serious internal damage for it to heal because it's being kind of inflated and deflated and all this movement going on. So whereas an oscillator, I don't know how it works, but it, it keeps 
you're you're kind of at a, a constant pressure so there's no kind of chest movement it's just it's, and it's, it kind of makes a bizarre noise it's like a which just constantly circulate the same amount of air through the whole time yeah, yeah okay i got you yeah and so they put me on one of those thinking let's see if that works and um, i think yeah amazingly after uh, i don't know i spent i can't remember the, the figure five days a, a while on it they then brought me back to a ventilator and then they they my, i started showing signs of um you know kind of recovering uh, so yeah it ended up being nearly three weeks in a in a in induced coma um I, I tell you what and actually the hallucinations nightmares from that coma are worse than being blown up were you awake then uh, so conscious were you conscious in that yeah coma? so this is what they call it's it's called intensive care psychosis and a lot of guys go through it well, well, we spoke myself so I, 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 i'm 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 going to mention it so because i mentioned it at the start of the podcast chris shirley yeah who's ex-booting officer so right now unfortunately chris is in an induced coma because of a mountaineering accident so this is interesting to you yeah and it, and actually it's probably something you should yeah he, his mind at the moment will be playing all sorts of tricks with him um and so and yeah and actually it's probably something where we should get probably message to his missus you know it, it might even go back to his, his afghan times and stuff like that well, I'm, I'm gonna after we get off this i swear yeah. to, i'll drop a message you come out you, you come when you come out of the cut you, you your brain basically just starts doing all sorts of things so 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 if, for example if i give you an example when i came out of the coma um i was adamant that i had been captured by the taliban and been tortured in kazakhstan and eventually escaped and made it to hospital and then repatriated and you know i was literally kind of telling everyone this story oh i said i couldn't talk because i had a tracheotomy and so but, but i kind of remember trying to explain this situation and i'm still bed you know i couldn't move much but i, I was just and I, they're like you haven't you didn't that wasn't the case and i was like well you know i was absolutely and it was only when i was actually a few weeks later telling uh, this story where i was talking to a consultant saying well i vividly remember uh being tortured I remember being strapped down. I remember being used for propaganda. And I remember thinking, right, if if I'm going, I'm going to take one of them with me. And I managed to break three of these restraints and I start strangling this guy. And that's kind of all, all I remember of that. That, But it's so real. Obviously, you look back and you think, well, yeah, but then the, the, the dream or hallucination disappears. So why don't you? But at the time, your brain, it, it, you can smell, you can feel heat. Everything. My friend, my friend Josh, who had a his ex. Oh, he was a bootneck as well. Josh Pelland, he bootneck. Pell- yeah. Josh Pelland. Yeah. He he talked about so he had a nasty um, climbing accident, rocker, yeah. paralyzed, and um, he spoke about when he was when he came round, but it was for I think it was for two weeks. He thought he'd been captured by the Taliban, yeah. and he was in, and they had to restrain him. He thought he thought it constantly. And he was still on the drugs. It's, it's crazy yeah. isn't it and so, and so when i was explaining this to the consultant he went oh yeah that mm, that, that explains i said what explains what and he said well we, we were doing a routine operation so they were inserting a pick line so they'd um it's basically yeah just they they put a feeder tube in your arm down into your heart so they can basically you know take blood give blood in get drugs but immediately um and so you, you've got this this line that goes yeah straight into your body and so it's a, it's a routine op Apparently, yeah, you know, I'm in a coma, so they don't need to put me asleep for this. But obviously, the anaesthetist is monitoring it. And uh, mid-operation, apparently, <clears throat> I open my eyes. I then rip the ventilator tube out of my throat, pull all the lines out of my neck, and start strangling the anaesthetist. Oh my god! And um, 
and so, and, and there's all sorts, I punched a nerve, all sorts of stuff. There's things, I remember being back on patrol. I'd, I'd recovered. I'd, I knew I'd been in my brain. It said, you've been injured, but you've recovered. You're back out with the lads, albeit I was back out in the original checkpoint. You know, clearly the time frames wouldn't work, but it's so real. And then this is the crazy, and then, but I was able to hover so that the IED threat didn't hit me. I could, whenever, whenever we went out on patrol, <laughs> I know I can laugh about it now, I'd be a foot off the ground. <laughs> but that was, I was like completely like real. And then there was these contact, and then I had another one where I was, I'd been moved to a private hospital in Switzerland. And it was like mega Gucci. And uh, I remember thinking, and, there were, and um, the, the, uh, I found out that the way they would make uh, were making their money was that they were filming all the patients, uh, and I and ba- basically being changed and you know wiping them whenever you know because you know you're in a coma you still got to shit and, and all those things you know you have a catheter in but you know stuff all goes on you still have to be looked after for the nurses, and so in, in somehow, my, you know, I'd got it into my head that they were selling this these kind of like. <laughs> weirdo kind of videos and that's how they made their money and and one one quite quite sad one actually the um i remember saying oh there's one where i'd i'd been moved to a fairground i was again i was in kazakhstan uh, in a tented hospital and uh there's a military welfare liaison officer and he said like we're we're flying out your your wife and kids to see you and i was like why that's fucking crazy why are you flying them out this is too dangerous but i was like really excited about seeing my kids in that and they said, oh, we're going we're gonna to take you in your bed to a fairground so it's not so, you know, scary for your kids. All crazy stuff, but in your head, totally, you know, realistic. Um, and I remember waiting at this fairground in my hospital bed all day. I'm like, when are they going to turn up? When are they going to be here? They're going to be here. And they eventually turn up and they kind of walk towards and they get, they get within a meter of me. And then they're like, oh, no, you've got to go now. And I didn't, I couldn't, didn't get to touch them. And I it's quite bizarre. And I remember telling my what now my ex-wife but I remember telling my wife that story and she was like oh that might have been when and so there was a time where they thought it was like touch and go and obviously kids aren't allowed in intensive care normally but they said to my wife and my mum you know you can carry the kids in to see him Um, and they said but you've got to stay a metre back from the bed don't you know because they didn't want obviously the kids to get infected they're worried about the kids not me Um, and so we thought that's probably and basically what it is so you're on these drugs to keep you in the induced coma but you're not completely out of it and so there is still a bit of brain activity and as your body gets used to the drugs obviously you start to come out of this induced coma and so often apparently you know my mum or my you know my ex-wife would be my bedside and they would say you know daily your eyes my eyes would open i'd look around and they'd be like oh my god you know wait and then you're kind of just what's happening is you are you're coming out of the coma and your brain takes on the surroundings and turns it into something completely else fucked up um but because and this happens you know it could be you could be in a car accident and similar thing but because you know military you, you've come from such a high threat environment where on a daily basis your life is in danger the brain is just totally kind of on on alert and turns those kind of surroundings into something that basically people are trying out to get you. They're there to kill you. And so, yeah, it was, it was horrendous. How long, how long did it take to fully recover? <clears throat> so, yeah, I had three weeks coma, a couple of weeks in intensive care. And then once I got on the ward, I started making quite a quick, fairly good recovery. So it's two, three months in hospital. 
then to Headley Court. And then that's when your kind of rehab starts in earnest. Um, but because I had a load of shrapnel, so they never they never cut me open again in the chest, but they just knew there was a load of shrapnel in there. So I, during my rehab, I was having to have a CT scan every four weeks to kind of monitor the shrapnel. And uh, one of the consultants, he said to me, he'd done a bit of research. He'd looked at, you know, Vietnam, Korea, and blast injuries to the chest. And they were trying to find examples of, you know, what had happened to people with shrapnel in their chest. And I'd had like, I had a piece 20 mil wide, two millimeters from my pulmonary artery. I had bits in, in my lung, lung was torn apart, but, it, you know, the shrapnel in there, it was all over the place. I wasn't allowed my heart rate to go above 120 because they didn't, they didn't want my heart beating against this piece of shrapnel. But they were kind of thinking, well, let's see if it scars over and just becomes part of my body. Was the kind of they, they were they, they didn't know it was kind of uncharted territory basically because no one had survived that type of chest injury blast injury to the chest, um, and uh, so I was having these CT scans every four weeks and yeah you know, rehab was kind of progressing you know I found it I actually found it quite tough though because I was you know I was I had all my limbs I was known as a four limmer at Headley Court, um, but, but yeah. <laughs> And so, you know, it's kind of, you know, you, you, single amputees kind of, oh, you just got a scratch. Double amputee, you know, fairly, you know, triple amputee, they were the daddies. It's unusual for an able-bodied person to be discriminated against, right? <laughs> it was exactly <laughs> like that. Um, and, and what made it worse, you know, you'd be doing the kind of group rehab sessions. And because I wasn't allowing my heart rate to go above 120, 125, I'd actually, you know, get to, a, it's actually not much you can do. <laughs> Yeah. And so often I'd be there not do and you know, obviously guys knew the situation, but um it was it was difficult for me because I just wanted to get on and try and get better. Anyway, about nine nine months in, a year later, nine, ten months, I started having a couple of uh, yeah, uh, coughing episodes where I was bringing up blood. And <clears throat> there was one that was quite actually I go back I'd already coughed up a bit of shrapnel during a a rehab session and so they were a bit like well this is not you know there's obviously stuff still floating around but there had been no blood with that um but then i started having internal bleeds i had one i kept quiet about i didn't tell anyone stupid why i don't know utterly stupid you know you've got shrapnel inside yourself and i was just a bit like oh. uh, and then the next time it was like serious i couldn't breathe i remember i could feel just like kind of i was like having to go to clear to be able to breathe and then i'd bring up you know literally um you know, 100 200 mil of blood and then and that was you know fortunately it stopped it lasted about 10 minutes but that was a bit of like okay they're up straight out to birmingham i wasn't i was at home at that point as well so they had me in hospital for a week they needed an emergency thoracotomy where they then split you open again fortunately it stopped um and the, the consultants were like look we need to do something about this it's clearly not gonna stay still I was like, okay, so what do you suggest? And they're like, well, we're going to have to cut you open. I went, okay. And they said, but you're going to have to elect for it. I said, what do you mean? They said, well, you've got to decide. I said, well, what's your, what's your professional opinion? Well, we can't tell you. <laughs> Not even a, but off the record. Though. No, that's Not what I tried to get out. Right. I said, what do you mean you can't tell me? Well, it's got to be your decision because, again, we, you know, we've never done this type of operation. This is uncharted waters. Uh, highly chance, high chance of you dying. You know that you have to decide. And I'm like, I said, okay. What happens if I have another severe bleed and I get rushed in? What will you do? And he's like, well, we'll do an emergency, cut you open there and then, and get on with it. I was like, okay. Would you rather do that or a planned one where I say, cut me open? And they said, well, of course, we'd like to plan it. And I'm like, okay. 
do it cut me open okay. yeah yeah I, I i get it i get it they gotta yeah yeah are you right now though yeah so they went in i think it was about seven hours they they took out in the end 15 pieces of shrapnel kind of that yeah 20 20 mil size down to small bits um and so it was a bit frustrating because the rehab then kind of has to start all over again um but you know, at least then they got out the big bit next, you know, close to my heart. And so I could raise my heart rate and, you know, but I rehab, I could actually get a lot more out of it. Um, and yeah, I suppose the rest, then they could start looking at my knee. Cause I then I just start, let's start looking at my knee and other, you know, they, they tried microfracture surgery, tran- cartilage transport. They start looking at my other bits because the chest was always the kind of most severe life-threatening injury. And so that was always the focus once that was fairly secure. Um, albeit two years ago, I coughed up a bit of shrapnel. Yeah, as you story. do, as you do. I was <laughs> ill for two weeks. I thought I had man flu, proper man flu. I had real aches and you know sweats, but I wasn't kind of you know sneezing, runny nose or anything like that. I just thought oh, it was proper flu. Um, if proper, you know, get to the afternoon, I'd be hanging out, literally just really aching. I just have to just kind of go to bed, and it lasted two weeks. And um, uh, <laughs> I was, she'll help me hate this, my my girlfriend now we, we we were having sex and i was literally climaxing <laughs> and I, i'm like i start coughing up shit and she's like what is it what is it what is it and basically i think the the, the, the i then coughed up <laughs> go on, go on. coughed up a bit of shrapnel <laughs> all this shit Ali, came up that is was, Ali, yeah, mate. Exactly. that's how hard i come <laughs> Fuck and this and it was like you know like a brown i can only describe it, it a bit like if you've got like a soggy digestive it's like brown shit there's no blood and there's this bit of shrapnel and it's about that you know it's about eight, eight ten mm. mil in diameter um it was jagged it wasn't like around <laughs> and i was like and she's like well, i was like ah. i just coughed up a bit of shrapnel and she's like fucking hell so i was like oh okay so i fortunately i got one of my consultants, uh, a couple of consultants, I got their their phone numbers. They're awesome. And I've kind of mess. I messaged. I didn't phone. I messaged and and said, "Oh, you know, I've just coughed this up. You know, during exertion, I've coughed this up. I sent him a photo. I said, you need to know, I've been ill for the last two weeks. I thought I had man flu. Don't know. It might, don't know if it's related. So he's like, right, get up to Birmingham. We're not CT scans and like." Oh. And he's like, oh, well, we didn't think there was any more shrapnel. I said, I oh, know, you said there was no more shrapnel in there. I said, but clearly, he went, well, you, you can't see everything. Anyway, next day, I felt right as rain. And the, basically, this shrapnel, obviously, it started moving. And I'd been ill for two weeks. So I guess at that point, it moved into areas where the body was going, what the fuck is this foreign object? Trying to gonna get it out. And eventually, it made its way into my airway, and I'd cough the bugger up. Body's amazing, isn't it? Incredible. The body's amazing. Incredible. Mate, we've only got a couple of minutes left. So, and, um, and all of before before we go on to the shameless plug opportunity, uh, mate, that was a fucking absolute pleasure talking to you. Um, Just a you, shit, you, shit you, dick, really. I'm not really actually said you, my... You, you, no, no. You, no, it's not, mate. It's, it's, uh, it's interesting to hear, but it's interesting to hear. All the stories are different. Um, and uh, and plus, <coughs> you know, for the guys who don't make it, it's, you... you, you you're telling it like, yeah. like it was on the ground. I mean, um, just going before I forget, are you happy for me to put you in touch with Chris's missus? Yeah, yeah, no. But I, I mean, to say, <coughs> he's like he's doing well, but 
mate, probably the same with like, your family. Like, you, it'd be really comforting for them to hear, I yeah, think, no, from someone who's been in the position Chris I'm, is in now. Scary for, and I, yeah, I will because my, my dad had a triple heart bypass a year. I didn't mean to put you on the spot earlier. I, I apologize. No, 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 so, no, 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 a couple of years ago. And there was, you know, so that whereas for, you know, for the heart, they go in through the front, they split your ribcage through the front. And <clears throat> yeah, he's, yeah, having the only similarities here between you and him is the induced coma. No, 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 I'll, come, right. on, I'll <laughs> come on to that. I'll come on to that. Obviously, okay. it's about the drugs basically they <clears> use. Yeah. But no, the reason I said, and I said to my dad, I said, look, when you, when you come out of this, you're going to, you know, you're going to, you know, there's potential that you're going to be, you know, you're going to feel under threat, all these kind of things from the, you know, the drugs they use. And it wasn't an induced coma, it's similar stuff, ketamine, morphine, all that. And um, he was, and he constantly, I remember him saying, oh, they're trying to kill me, everyone's trying to kill me, the hospital staff, you know, he, he kind of had, he had very different um, challenges mentally, what his brain was telling him. But I remember actually... Uh, uh, I'd visited him during the day and I was at home I had a phone call and the doctors were like no, you need to speak to him and I was like remember dad I'm telling you it's not real it's okay they're not no no they're trying to hurt me they're trying to hurt me the doc- you know, and all this kind of stuff um, and so similar thing yeah I, I will have a word of it because yeah you, you might come round from the injury she may not want to I'll, no, I'll ask no, 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 yeah, she may not yeah, want to um, shameless plug mate we didn't get onto Mission Motorsport I mean like I said Mission Motorsport got James Cameron coming on yeah yeah so he um, and that is to talk about Mission Motorsport which is amazing which, but uh so that's how I got into motorsport, yeah, through them. Just quickly going back to your military career. Uh, major at 29. Yeah. Fucking flyer, weren't you? <laughs> flyer, flyer. When, when did you get in? 18? Uh, yeah, straight from school. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I was I was off to do an engineering degree and I went to the careers office because a mate of mine had passed out of Marines as a Marine. I went to his passing out parade and I was like, oh, this looks awesome. And I, I aspirated, I thought, I want to be special forces because you know, I want to jump through windows like they did in the 80s and, you know in the the embassy and i thought well, what's what's the best thing you can get into pre special forces was marines first and, and, then, the the Paris, wrong, and the then the paris pa- and then the paris <laughs> and i thought at the time i thought oh i just passed my driving test and i thought oh you know i want a, want a decent car surely you get paid more as an officer and there was no other reason <laughs> and i went to careers office and said oh, i want to join as an officer and they went you went yeah go and get a degree and then come back no one's no one's got in as an officer without a degree for four years and i was like well i can't i've got my a levels give me a chance if I don't get in I'll go and get a degree and then come back and amazingly I got in yeah <laughs> uh, Mission Motorsport I'll cover that with James you got like 25 podiums haven't you when you're racing oh yeah for the car yeah yeah introduced motorsport through Jim whilst I was in rehab at Mission Motorsport yeah raced so, catering for four years I'm now an instructor a coach and then uh, Invictus Games racing so right so how can people follow you racing how can people follow you uh uh, yeah, cheesy social media plug, I guess. Yeah, Twitter, Stephen McCulley, at Stephen McCulley. Instagram, at Steve.McCulley. Uh, they're the personal ones. M-C-C-U-L-L-E-Y. Yes, yeah. correct. Well remembered. Um, I got my bike business that I set up whilst I was in rehab. Leos. Leos Bikes. L-I-O-S. Yeah, L-I-O-S Bikes. Named after your my daughters. Lillian Oscar. Yeah. Oh, son of daughter. Son yeah, of yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry, uh, that's, sorry. We didn't even talk about that. Both of those, yeah. Int- yeah. So yeah, but Leos is... It, I mean, fuck it, I'm going to have time. But Leos is interesting because you invented the, the lightest ever fold-up bike. Yeah, back in 2015. Correct? Yeah, yeah. I know my shit. Mate. You do, you've done your research. <laughs> and I've not even mentioned any of this. <laughs> but no, my big, big thing now is splitting my time between Leos bikes and uh, motorsport, kind of basically trying to progress my personal career uh, motorsport as an instructor and coach but also um invictus i've taken on invictus games racing um, right tell me what that is then so uh three years ago this is gonna be very quick james holder co-founder of super dry 
uh, who races Aston Martins himself, approached the Invictus Foundation and said, I want to uh, give the opportunity for some injured folk to race at the very highest levels, GT racing. This is this is serious seven-figure you know, a year racing. Um, and I want to do it for a, a, a military cause foundation. He said, and he also pledged money to the foundation. So there's no charity money whatsoever. This is his personal money. It's not super dry money, his personal money, three years worth. And so... Over that period, uh, bespoke Jaguar GT4 race cars were built uh, in in 2017. Then 2018, last year, was our first season of racing. Uh, it was a tough year because brand new cars with no factory support. You know, it was tough. We had a lot, you know, a lot of uh, mechanical issues. You know, we, we we only finished half the races we entered. But then this year, amazing success. Uh, you know, we kind of uh, four, five, five podiums. Um, you know, we put the, the first race of the season. We put Jaguar on the podium for the first time in 22 years. Um, so yeah, it's been seriously good. But the, he he always James Holder always said it's going to be three years and that was it. And so um, so I'm now kind of taking on the team with a bold vision to um, progress. What year are you in now? So this is in theory year three. We've had two years of racing. The first year was actually building the cars. You're prepping for going solo then in year four. Not well, not so. No, I, I basically what I wanted to say. So there's only been a, you know a handful of injured guys involved. Um, what I want to do is basically um, increase the the veteran involvement because there's a real synergy between motorsport and the military, and I think a ex-military motorsport team could be very successful. So I want to build the team. I want you know engineers, truckies, logisticians, you know all sorts, catering, marketing, communications can all be ex-military and do a really good job. So I basically want to kind of create a whole team around ex-military and compete at the highest levels and what's that that fucking sounds awesome mate by the way yeah how, how, do, how do people follow that at racing invictus that's another podcast no that is yeah. got another podcast to do <laughs> at racing invictus right uh steve it's been an absolute pleasure thanks for having me cheers for time uh best wishes to chris shirley yes definitely and thanks for your support there and uh anything else no thank you fucking awesome cheers mate cheers bud Thank you for listening. Another shout out to Chris Shirley, Shack of a Chris. We love you, buddy. Uh, if you uh, get a chance, tag Chris Shirley on social media. Give an old Shaka the surf's up dude sign and uh, do the hashtag Shaka, S-H-A-K-A, number four, Chris. And then when he wakes up, I'll his induced coma. He'll, uh, he'll, he'll wake up to all these words of encouragement and help him in his speedy recovery after his, uh, after his mountaineering accident in Italy. Get well soon, Chris. Ah, uh, another thank you to our sponsors, Rugby for Heroes, who just raised over four thousand pounds in their uh, in their latest um, fundraising event, which is a, the inaugural Rugby for Heroes Supper Club event at the Tame Hair in Leamington. One, an awesome event. Two, amazing amount of money fundraised, and three, cracking place to have it. The Tame Hair supporting local business. Awesome people there. Johnny runs it. He's an absolute fucking dude who does cool food. So thank you to all of those people. You can follow Rugby Heroes at Rugby Number Four Heroes on social media. The next event is an invitational rugby match on the twenty third of November, in which I should be playing, and a bunch of other podcast guests should be playing. Please come along. Old Edmontonians Rugby Football Club kicking off at one o'clock.
also sponsored the podcast today were Westway Nissan. Yes, Westway Nissan, the largest Nissan dealership in the UK. The largest Nissan dealership and the one who provide up to a 20% discount for service personnel and veterans. Yes, they do do new vehicles. Yes, they do do used vehicles. Yes, they do private and commercial hire. I fucking told you this at the start of the podcast. You haven't listened. The managing director of Westway is Tony Lewis, ex-military. The business, i.e. Westway Nissan, loves the ex-military Love and I love the military, military and ex-military, and they actually do like to employ ex-military where they can. So if you're looking for work, give them a call. You never know they might have something going. If they don't have anything going, I'm sure they will try and help point you to someone who has. Thank you to those sponsors. Thank you to everybody who's supporting Chris Shirley on social media and tells of venture on Hiatus Foundation while he's uh, poor in hospital. It is very much appreciated. By, uh, by his family, by Anna, his missus, and uh, all his friends, and myself included. He's such a good guy, and uh, we wish him a speedy and full recovery. That is it. Until next time, out. <laughs>